Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's James. I'm one of the non-staff elders here at Christchurch. I'm married to Helen, who's in the second row here, and I have one son, Isaac, who you may have seen walking around with an apple, which was about half the size of his head earlier. Um, uh, and during the week, I work as a software engineer across on the Wirral. Uh, shall I pray as we start? Lord, we just pray as we open your word uh, that you would just be working in our hearts. Soften our hearts, Lord, and help us get to know you better through your word. In your glorious name. Amen. Amen. Well, on the 20th of June this year, a man drove a van at a crowd of Muslims leaving Finsbury Park Mosque during Ramadan who killed one and injured 11. Previous to that, at the beginning of June, three men in a van drove across London Bridge, jumped out and started stabbing people. They were just enjoying a night out at Borough Market. Eight people were killed. Two weeks before that, a man walked into the Manchester Exhibition Centre just after a pop concert had finished and set off a bomb. He killed 22 and injured almost 120 more. And then two months previous to that, a car was driven through crowds on the Westminster Bridge, killing five and injuring over 20. In France, over the last two years, 220 people have been killed in terrorist attacks. And in Berlin, on the 19th of December, a man drove a truck into people enjoying a Christmas market, killing 12 and injuring 56. And I could go on and on listing tragedies like this. Recently, we went, in, went to the polls to vote for a government to supposedly lead this country for the next five years. We were sold stability, opposing views of a better way forward, but what it seems you might have is instability and backroom deals. We read in the newspapers of corrupt politicians, people without enough money to feed their kids, the NHS falling apart, and bosses of failing companies taking huge bonuses while their workers suffer. You might be forgiven for feeling like this world is out of control, like those in power don't care for us, and everything's going to pot. But as we look at Acts 2 today, what we'll in fact see is that Jesus has been exalted as Lord over the earth. And our response to that should be to turn to him and repent. And in the resulting community of believers, something amazing happens. But before this, just a quick recap of chapter 1. We saw Jesus' ascension to heaven, but prior to that he'd promised the Holy Spirit to, to his apostles. The Holy Spirit would come upon them, and they were told that it would make them witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit would empower Jesus' message to go out beyond borders. We also saw God's work throughout history in a suicide of Judas, which was spoken by the Holy Spirit through David in the Psalms. We then saw the continuation of God's work through the appointment of another apostle, Matthias. But this was just the start of the story of the first Christians. And so today we find ourselves in Acts 2, and we're going to look a little bit at the background from the first half of the chapter before we focus on the part which was just read to us today. So we suddenly come upon the apostles together when there's a 
a loud sound like a mighty rushing wind, except there wasn't any wind. And tongues of something that looked like fire descended upon them, but it didn't burn them. Now this must have been quite a spectacle in itself, but then they started to speak in different people's languages. Now Galileans were known for being uncultured and had a strong accent when speaking, so this would have made this all the more amazing. These uncultured people speaking languages from all across the Jewish world. Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us that there are, in verses 9 to 11, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. See, what Luke's doing here is a mental sweep of every nation on earth where he can think that Jews resided. He isn't telling us that literally every people group on earth was represented, but he's telling us that every Jewish group is represented and that God's work's going out in many languages to all the nations. So, how do people react to this? Unsurprisingly, many people were amazed and perplexed. We're told they asked one another, what does this mean? However, some just mock, suggesting they're drunk, which leads to a great sarcastic response by Peter. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Drunk at 9 a.m., what a ridiculous suggestion, he says. But to explain what this does all mean, Peter quotes the prophet Joel. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and the glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now Peter is interpreting this as happening right now. The scripture is now being fulfilled. The last days have started from this point onwards. God's pouring out his spirit as promised. But as promised, this will no longer be limited to certain people. This outpouring is for all kinds of people, male and female, young and old, all his people an offer which is open to anyone who will call upon his name. And what a great illustration of this outpouring we've just seen in this passage. People of all nations gathered, hearing the apostles, that's normal, average people, speaking their own languages. What a fantastic picture of the Spirit going out to all the people. But this outpouring is more than just an impressive display because it's precisely what Jesus promised in chapter 1. And so Peter goes on to explain and argue what this outpouring really shows. Because crucially, what this outpouring shows us is that Jesus is Lord over the earth. So Peter starts off by pointing out Jesus' credentials. Jesus had performed miracles, wonders and signs that these people themselves had witnessed. And through these things, God, the God who they trusted, 
was testifying that Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus was accredited to them by God. And these people were Jews. They were God-fearing people. Their God had attested to who Jesus was, that Jesus was who he claimed to be. But these Jews, these God-fearing people, standing before Peter, had also delivered Jesus over to death. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Wow, well that, that's direct and damning, but clearly irrefutable. As if they needed reminding, this man accredited by God to them, they sent to the cross and put to death. I mean, imagine how you might feel at this point. Only a few weeks previously, you'd been shouting, crucify, crucify. You'd been part of that crowd, jeering as Jesus was beaten. Witness this man, Jesus Christ, marched up the hill carrying his cross watched as he was nailed to that cross and left to die naked with a mocking sign above his head how would you feel guilty well i'd think so alarmed hoping that somehow you might be able to talk your way out of it now i think you'd probably know the game was up there was no no way of talking a way out of this one you'd feel broken ashamed like all hope was gone well peter doesn't stop there He continues by telling them that God raised Jesus from the dead, that death couldn't keep a hold on him. And just in case they wanted to deny the importance of this, he quoted Psalm 16, a psalm of David. I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with your joy in your, with joy in your presence. Through this psalm, Peter shows them that possibly the greatest prophet of them all, King David, was looking forward to Jesus' resurrection. See, David can't have been referring to himself because he died and was buried. His tomb's there for everyone to see. So David's looking forward to the Messiah. Jesus, the one who would be raised from the dead. The one who would sit at the right hand of the Father. And so Peter sums up what they all must have gathered by this point. And possibly been fearing. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Wow, again, how direct. And Peter doesn't even need to persuade the Jews he's speaking to that the miracles or the resurrection happened because they've seen them themselves. The evidence is laid out in front of them. They know the truth and they're condemned. This man Jesus was who he said he was and God, their God, confirms that, but they killed him. God, however, raised him, an act which was even prophesied by King David. He knew it was going to happen and recorded it in the Psalms. God has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah, King over all the earth. This man, mocked, beaten and murdered, was raised again and has been exalted over all things. We see death, destruction, corruption every day in the world. 
We hear about starving children. We see politicians we don't trust. And we think that everything's out of control. But it also must have seemed that way to the first Christians. I mean, it's not a promising start, is it? Only in chapter 1 they were having to cast lots to replace Judas, one of Jesus' inner circle who betrayed him and then committed suicide. Jesus had ascended into heaven and they were alone among the very people who'd had him killed. But in this broken, messed up world, where inept politicians and terrorists seem in charge, where Jesus' death seemed to show that evil prevails, Jesus has been raised and exalted as king over the earth. He, not politicians, is in control. He, not the rich and corrupt, in this world reigns over all. And this outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is just such a powerful sign of this. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit in chapter 1 and now exalted to the right hand of God has poured it out. The noise like a rushing wind, the tongues like fire, the languages and the words that Peter preaches are all signs of Jesus' supremacy. This world may seem broken, ruled by the corrupt and those with the most money, but ultimately, Jesus is in control. He has been made Lord and Messiah. He's done what no one else had done, has done, and defeated death. Well, how do these Jews that Peter's speaking to react to all of this? I mean, in some ways, you might think after such a direct and damning indictment, they might just turn and walk out, bury their heads in the sand, or just form a lynch mob and get rid of Peter and the apostles. After all, they'd already had Jesus put to death despite witnessing his miracles. But no, they're cut to the heart, and they ask, brothers, what shall we do? Again, put yourself into their shoes. Just imagine for a minute that suddenly the implications of your actions the depth of your sin become apparent to you. Imagine the pain in your heart, the despair, the fear. You put the Son of God to death. You accused him of blasphemy. Surely this is something that cannot be fixed. Surely the sentence for this can only be death and separation from him for all eternity. Well, yes, That is the sentence for the crime. But Peter has a simple response, a simple solution. Repent and be baptised. Just as in verse 21, the very end of the Joel quote, we're told, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter tells them to call on the name of the Lord. Peter pleads with them, repent and be baptised, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the the Lord our God will call. These people have turned their backs on God. They have blood on their hands, but this offer of salvation is available to even them. And through the Holy Spirit... This promise of salvation is now available for all. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
We're told that with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Jesus is Lord of the earth. And so this is of utmost importance. They must save themselves from this crooked generation. Peter doesn't just tell them about this or ask. He pleads with them. He sees the seriousness of this. And despite the fact that these people in front of him have killed Jesus and probably wanted him, Peter, dead too, he pleads with them to repent, to save themselves. And this applies to us too. There's a serious implication to the fact that Jesus has been exalted over all the earth. We can either turn to Jesus Christ and be saved or ultimately be separated from God and all that's good for eternity which is what we call hell. We see death, destruction, corruption every day in this world. We see corrupt politicians and terrorists seemingly in charge. And so we try to persuade ourselves that we're the good guy, that we're different. But the truth is that we're all sinners. We're told in Romans 3, verses 22 to 23, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and full glory fall short of the glory of God. Like the Jews Peter was speaking to, we all turn our backs on God. And ultimately, that's what matters. We don't want to accept that Jesus is Lord over the earth. We try to put ourselves up where he belongs as Lord over our lives. And if we live our lives ignoring Jesus Christ's rightful position as Lord and Messiah, then on the final day, we'll get what we want will be separated from God and all that's good for eternity. So like Peter, I want to plead with you. Jesus Christ is Lord over all the earth. So if you're, not, so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, please repent and be baptised. This offer is open for all people, no matter how bad you may think you are. The people Peter was talking to were the people who just turned Jesus over to Pilate to death. They were the people who shouted crucify, crucify, and yet this offer was even open to them. So we should be encouraged. If these people can be saved, then so can we. But this offer is necessary for all people to be made right with God, no matter how good you may think you are. Whilst it may seem like the world is in chaos and there's no leadership worth submitting to, Jesus Christ is Lord over the earth. And ultimately, it's him who we'll give account to. But, through the Holy Spirit, salvation is available to us. So it's the most important thing that we can do to repent and be baptised. We've all sinned and turned our backs on God. We're all in the same boat. But we all also have have the chance to be reunited with him and to spend eternity with him. What an amazing offer become part of this new community and live as part of this perfected community forever. Well, Peter pleaded to those he was speaking to with many words, so how did they respond? Well, amazingly, if we look down at the passage, we see that on that day, 3,000 people repented and joined God's new community, a community which up until this point had only consisted of 120 people. Can you imagine being there? How amazing would that have been? Can you imagine the logistics of this? Imagine this church here growing by 2,500%. 
Well, <laughs> now at this point, the more cynical amongst you may be thinking, well, yes, lots of people said they believed. But you know, wrapped up in the emotion, having just heard this sermon from Peter, with all these weird things going on around them, I bet when Monday came, it was back to usual. Back to work, and this was largely forgotten by most of them. Well, if you do think that, then you'd be wrong. Let's look down at verses 42 to 47 and see what actually happened. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What an amazing account. Here we're seeing the forming of God's new community, a community indwelt by the Holy Spirit. These people devoted themselves to God's word, to fellowship, to breaking bread and praying together. They even sold their possessions to distribute to those among them who were in need. They treated what they had as shared and common among them. Now this passage is sometimes used as a picture of communism in the Bible and as a proof that communism is biblical. But in actual fact, I don't think that that's what it's showing at all. It is true that this passage and a further passage in chapter 4 do seem to suggest some level of common ownership, but I don't think that they're a description of communism. If we look a little closer here, we see their homes being referred to, and further on we see their possessions being referred to. So they must have owned things themselves. But what's actually going on here, rather than communism, is something far more radical, something far more amazing. Because what we see here is the Holy Spirit working in this community and love for Christ and for one another being lived out. The people's attitude to their wealth was that it was communal because they understood that what they had belonged to God. They shared it because they were thankful for the salvation they'd received and out of love for God and one another. Their attitude to what they owned was it was to be shared with those who were in need. So that's exactly what they did. They shared what they had. This passage is an amazing picture of God's community freely, generously caring for one another, sharing their lives and their possessions. Isn't it fantastic that God's community is so radical in its love for one another, so radical in its care and generosity, could be mistaken for communism? Because even though it's quite the opposite, because in God's community... People aren't forced to give up their possessions for one another. They choose to out of love. And this community isn't only radical in the sharing of what they owned. It's a community that's radical in diversity. So we saw at the beginning of the chapter that people of all nations were gathered, here in their own languages. And now 3,000 of those are part of this community. We saw in the Joel quote that male and female, young and old, would all have this spirit poured out upon them. This is a hugely diverse community of male and female, young and old from all nations, 
These people, previously divided, are now joined in Christ. Brothers and sisters, worshipping together, sharing the good news that they had received. This community is a multicultural, word-centred, loving, sharing, close-knit group of all ages, drawing more people in. This community is a fantastic picture of how church should be and a fantastic shadow of what eternity will be like when this world is remade, refined, perfected. Currently, this world might seem out of control and broken, and it is broken. That's evident by the death, destruction, and corruption we see every day. It's evident by the corrupt politicians and businessmen who run things and terrorists who try to control us with fear. But the reality is that Jesus Christ is Lord over this earth. He is in charge, and he's poured the Holy Spirit out on believers and made salvation available to everyone who calls on his name. And the community he forms here and now with those who call upon his name is truly extraordinary. What we see in church is a foretaste of heaven. Yes, currently the church on earth is imperfect. That much is obvious. And this church family is imperfect. We don't get it right by any means. We make mistakes. We hurt one another. We can be selfish. We can be unwelcoming. But where we see these things that we've been reading about in this passage, what we're seeing is the Holy Spirit at work. When we see people from different nations together worshipping, where we see churches centred on God's word, God's people praying together earnestly, God's people loving one another, caring for one another, sharing for one another, with one another. God's community growing through people repenting of their sin. When we see these things, what we're seeing is the Holy Spirit at work. This is something truly amazing and we should rejoice and be glad at it where we see it happen and pray for more of it. So if you're a Christian here today, be encouraged. As you live as part of God's community and see these things happening, what you're seeing is a foretaste of, eter- of eternity. What is, of what's to come? I mean, what a privilege. In this world where people are blown up just going to a pop concert and mown down, walking along the street by evil people, in this world where corruption is ever-present, Jesus is Lord. Jesus has defeated death and has been raised up over all. And through the Holy Spirit, the offer to turn to Jesus and be saved is available to all. And so we have the privilege of becoming part of this new community and seeing a foreshadow of something much, much greater. We have the privilege of seeing the Holy Spirit at work here and now and have the great joy of him working in us. And if you're here today and you aren't a Christian, then I want to make it clear, this offer is open to you. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So I want to urge you, I want to plead, as Peter pleaded, please call upon the name of the Lord. We're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So please, please repent and be baptised so that you can be in a relationship with God for eternity. And not only that, you can be a part of this amazing community It may not look amazing or impressive at first glance, but it is the Holy Spirit working through God's people. And you can be a part of this amazing thing that the Holy Spirit's doing here and now on earth. 
Please don't put this off. Jesus is Lord over the earth. He defeated death. It's only through him that you can be forgiven and be made right with God. It's only through him that you can have a relationship with the one living God. So turn to him and save yourself from this crooked generation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is Lord and Saviour over all the earth and that he's poured out the Holy Spirit upon all believers and that despite our sin, all who call upon the name of the Lord can be saved. We thank you that we can see the Holy Spirit working through this church here and now. We pray that your word will be going out and growing in your community here. In your almighty name, Lord. Amen.